all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you. If you can, please donate today at mpbonline.org. And thanks. Good morning. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Well, you've tuned into the program where we answer your questions that you might have about your own health or the health of someone near and dear to you. You can reach us this morning with those questions by dialing one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or if you're not able to email, you can if you're not able to call us, you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Hope everybody's having a great morning this morning, and uh, it's uh, certainly gotten muggy really quick. I went out for a run, I guess that was Monday afternoon. It was the first time it actually felt like that humidity had really jumped up, and uh, I was sucking wind there, uh, literally, I guess. Um, it was it was not a good, uh, <laughs> good run for Dr. Jimmy there. We're going to go to our first caller, David in Horn Lake. Good morning, David. Thank you for calling. Uh, thank you for taking my call. I got a question about the Wild West medical marijuana. Medical <laughs> marijuana, um, is there um, certain um, well, uh, kinds, I guess it would be like if you're smoking it, and um, uh, would, it, does, would that increase your chances of lung cancer? I mean, there's got to be some pluses and minuses on everything. Oh, sure, and also, yeah. if, if, if they've done any studies about any kind of interreactions, if you're taking, I don't know, cholesterol drugs, and then you're taking medical marijuana or blood pressure or diabetes, you know what I'm saying? And um, one more little question throw in there. Um, um, how are they going to um, um, standardize the... Um, but listen, like if you go to the pharmacy, you know it's gone through a reputable license facility, and you know what you buying is what you buying. You know what I'm saying? Right. And uh, yeah. I don't know if it's going to be counterfeit or how they're going to enforce the uh, the strength or the make sure it's whatever you're getting is pure and not contaminated, like the uh, some stuff that happened a while back. And I'll shut up now and let you see if you can answer some of my questions. Sure, David. Those are great questions and certainly applicable uh, and in the news. And the the first couple of them, you know, marijuana, like any other, and and by marijuana we mean THC. So that's really the the compound in it that um, that is responsible for either good or bad effects. And certainly, just like any. Um, uh, component of a what's you know at least touted as a natural um, remedy for something or a medication has uh, risks and benefits uh, that are associated with it, and it may not be appropriate for all people. And a lot of people are saying, "Oh, marijuana is great for everything. We need to be dispensing it to everybody. It doesn't really have any long-term side effects." But that's not 
true for any medication or any natural uh, homeopathic um, uh, remedy or anything that we give. So uh, that's where the research is right now. Like, who is it good for? What are some of the interactions? And I've noticed that it's popped up on a couple uh, of different interactions, drug-drug interactions now that you can plug it in. Um, I should add CBD in there, too, with two main components uh, from uh, from, uh, the cannabis plant. Uh, One is THC and one is CBD. And in actuality, there's it's hard to get just one or the other. You're going to get sort of a a mixture of both, even if it's in small amounts with CBD or CBD that you're ingesting. Um, There are different ways to deliver this to the body. So smoking is one, and then orally is another. That's the two uh, main ways of delivering it to the system. And it can, as you've brought up, it can be sort of difficult to know how much you're getting. And uh, if you look at other states that are a little bit ahead of us, like Colorado, there are some standardization procedures that they've put into place to try to um, to regulate it. And that's the point where we're at in Mississippi. And the health department in our our in the legal um, in the legislation that was passed and signed by the governor, uh, it is uh, sort of puts that in the lap of the health department to do that. So there are a lot of things that uh, that need to happen before that can actually take place, because we don't want people out there just to be selling it and not actually have the active ingredient. We don't want it to be. Uh, dramatically different in the amounts that you get so that we want it to be standardized. And we also want, if you're prescribing it, this is another issue that you're sort of alluding to, uh, we want people to be aware of that. You don't just need to, you know, uh, we don't need physicians to just prescribe it without having the knowledge of uh, what its uses might be, what interactions it might have. And uh, there was just a, I think it's either had just happened or coming up, there was uh, the Mississippi State Medical Association in conjunction with the health department is doing a uh, continuing education workshop for potential prescribers. So they're going over some of the ways that it can be prescribed and some of the uses for it. But we haven't ironed all that out yet. And I, my suspicion is it's going to be a huge effort on the on the uh, part of the uh, health department to get that ball rolling and make sure that uh, that we're keeping people safe um, but that that goes with anything you know a lot of people will say well I got it over the counter at a health food store and it had a lot of things I read on the internet that a, a substance was good for me but I had some bad complications uh, with my liver or I had bad complications with excessive bleeding because it interacted with platelets or another medication so uh, you don't need to take this on the side and not let your physician know about it because all of us are learning now what the potential interactions are with THC and other medications. And there may be some patients when it is contraindicated, just like everything else is. Uh, there's not one substance out there that you could give to the entire population uh, that won't cause any harm, potential harm. So it's um, you just have to keep that in mind. Uh, there are no panaceas for everything. Um, that, that's called snake oil. And uh, David's right. And we don't want it to be the Wild West out there. We want it to be nice and orderly and appropriate um, because the first tenet of good medicine is do no harm. So um, that's something that we, uh, you know, as physicians that we try to 
adhere to, hopefully, and um, we don't want to misprescribe or, or to prescribe inter- inappropriately, and particularly with new things that are coming out. So great questions, David. That's certainly something that we've, last couple of, uh, well, really the last couple of months, we've had uh, just about every program where somebody calls in about a question about that. So we appreciate that. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven MPB ring. That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. If you miss one of our programs, you can always go back and listen to it from our archive. You can look for those at Remedy. Uh, sorry, at MPBonline.org, and search for Southern Remedy there. It usually takes about twenty four hours to put those up. Or if you'd like to listen to us as a podcast, just go to your uh, favorite podcasting app and search for Southern Remedy on mpbonline.org, and you can find us there. Lots of questions about uh, COVID vaccines persist. You know, we've got a couple of variants that are out that are sort of – uh, what used to be called um, Omicron. So uh, worldwide, we're seeing some upticks here and there and uh, some of the cases in the United States. What we know so far is there's more infectability. There's a, it's easier to catch it, but much less severe, particularly in those who have either had COVID in the past, have been vaccinated, or a combination of those. So if you've never had COVID, if you hadn't been vaccinated, I would advise you to get vaccinated. Um, We've got tons of data that it's safe now, and um, that's probably the best way, particularly if you're in a higher-risk population. If you're older, if you have a weakened immune system from chronic diseases like diabetes or hypertension or you're obese, that's all high-risk groups. Um, If you're Native American or African American or Hispanic, that's also some higher-risk groups, so you'd want to protect yourself there. Got a couple of questions by email about vaccinations, um, particularly what should you do at this point now that we have recommendations on choice of vaccination? So is one better than the other one? If you got Johnson & Johnson as the first dose or if you got Pfizer and Moderna, should you stick with those? Or after you've completed uh, two of those or three, and now we're looking at three or four, does it matter what you take after that? There have been some studies that looked at that, both in uh, that are real-life studies. We've got enough uh, water under the bridge now to go back and look and see what was the most protective. And there are some really, really minor variations. Pfizer and Moderna both uh, surpassed Johnson & Johnson for uh, how well they protected you. But there are – it's virtually the same if you if you uh, look at Moderna or Pfizer as far as uh, protection against exposure and certainly some of the more severe complications. There's a little bit of data to support that if you got one – uh, you know, if you got Pfizer first, maybe you should get Moderna, or if you got Moderna, maybe you should mix up with Pfizer. That it gives you a little bit broader immunity. But in actuality, if you really tease out the data, there's not much difference between those. So, I would say if both of them are available, pick one of those, um, either Moderna or Pfizer, just because that again it provides a little bit better uh, protection than the Johnson and Johnson. And um, and if you're in that high-risk group, I probably would go ahead and do that because, again, the people that we see in other parts of the world and the United States who are still going to the ICU, still having more severe symptoms, are the ones that have never had COVID or they have not been vaccinated and are in a high-risk group. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Hello, I'm Dr. Nancy Lotridge-Anderson, president of New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advising firm and co-host of Money Talks. For over 10 years, Money Talks has been answering your personal financial questions and sharing knowledge about money management. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. I'm Dr. Jimmy with you this morning answering your calls. I got some good questions so far about medical marijuana. Doesn't have to be about that. Certainly can be about different things. Giving you permission to call right now. If you think that maybe it's something that only you're dealing with, I guarantee you there is somebody else out there just waiting for you to call this morning with those questions and share it with all of us. The number is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Got another email about uh, possible drug rashes. You know, a rash can be caused by lots of different things. Certainly in pediatrics, we see them a little bit more commonly than in adults. And it can be lots of different things. It can be things that you come into contact with, both physical contact or maybe it's in the air and you breathe it in. It could be an allergic response to something. Sometimes rashes can be from infections like uh, viral infections, which are very common in children. A lot of adenoviruses, enteroviruses that can cause those. And some of them can be in a certain pattern that you can uh, help in the diagnosis of it. Uh, Fist disease is one that comes to mind that's sort of a slap cheek appearance uh, with a a rash that's pretty typical of that. Uh, Or the rash that you get with chicken pox. We don't see a lot of chicken pox anymore, but that was fairly characteristic of that, or measles. Um, Thankfully, we don't have uh, much of either one of those because of vaccinations. So uh, rashes can be caused by a number of things, but the particular question was about a drug interaction. And uh, that's uh, something that's fairly common. If you read on the side effects of just about every drug, they'll have listed a rash being one of the potential side effects. It generally is pretty low for most medications. Some of them can cause a rash when combined with other things like Sun exposure uh, is one that um, that is very common, but um, that it's not necessarily a drug reaction. Sometimes it is in combination, as we just mentioned, with other things. But if you do have a rash, you certainly want to report that. Uh, certainly, uh, electronic means are very useful. Rashes sort of come and go sometimes. And uh, it's been very helpful for me for patients to send that in. Maybe they uh, contact me through our electronic medical record with a picture. Uh, You can do that that uh, sort of shows what that rash looks like, and then we can better understand what to do. Or, uh, but oftentimes you have to just come into the physician's office so that you can show them 
what's going on. And we treat that based on basically what kind of problems that you're having. So, um, you know, what's causing it really drives what our therapy is. So we don't want to just throw some steroid cream on a rash uh, across the board. That's not very helpful in some instances. We want to try to figure out what's going on first. Let's go to Michael from Gulfport. Good morning, Michael. Thank you for calling. Good morning. Um, I need to find an app or another way of cross-referencing medications. Sure, yeah. Um, so cross-referencing, I'll tell you what I use. I use Medscape uh, is the one I use, but there's several out there. Up to date, I used that in the past. That's one of the first ones that uh, that uh, came out. And uh, I'm sorry, Hippocrates was one that first came out. It's got a little bit more slant toward industry on what's, um, you know, they can sort of influence what the information is that's out there. I can tell you, uh, physicians, if you if you can get access to this, physicians and pharmacists use Micromedics um, is is another one that's probably going to come with a license though to, that you have to to use for that. Uh, and then up to date is another one, um, but uh, WebMD is also another useful one. So there's a lot out there. Um, again, I, I've used uh, Medscape uh, that you can look up medications and you can see what their potential side effects are, how they work, uh, and then you can it allows you a feature to go in and uh, put in all the medications that you're taking, and then it'll it'll list potential drug drug interactions. But those are some of the ones that I know about. Oh, that's super! Thank you very much for your help. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Yeah, that's always a good idea is to sort of know that. And, um, and again, we talked a little bit about, you know, non-prescription medications earlier. That's also something you need to let your physician know about because they, they can have interactions with uh, other medications as well. It doesn't have to be a prescription medication. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Janie, who is somewhere near Jackson. That sounds nebulous and mysterious. Good yes. morning, Janie. Uh, good morning. Thank you very much for uh, taking my call. Sure. I appreciate your program, but, you know, there's so much information out there, and I think that was wonderful that you gave us those two last websites because they're, it, clearly those are probably highly reputable, whereas if you just uh, type in something in the Internet, you can get a lot of information that is it's so much info that you don't know what to believe. Exactly. But I wanted to talk about COVID real quick and like your comment on it. I know I had COVID because in December of 2020, I got so sick and I, you know, I thought it was the flu. I've had the flu once or twice in my life. And so, you know, at that time, COVID was just breaking everything. Nobody had the common cold anymore. Nobody had the flu. Everything was COVID. So I didn't know what to believe, but I knew I was very sick. I got on antibiotics, and I'm usually a very healthy person anyway. So I wasn't like, like I'm, you know, in pretty good shape. So I had this COVID. I was for about seven days in bed. Only time I got up was to use the restroom and to eat a little something, maybe some soup, keep that fever down, Tylenol, and antibiotics. And lo and behold, after about seven, eight days, I was better. But I don't have my taste buds anymore. I, I could barely taste things. I have to put like cayenne yeah. pepper on. I never, I never ate pepper like this. 
Mm-hmm. I have a pizza. I got to put cayenne pepper on it so I can have a little flavor. Anyway, so I know I've had that. Why on earth would I get a shot that hasn't been tested on animals and no human testing? So we don't know what this shot is. And you, by shot, you're talking about the vaccines? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, but if that was a vaccine, like when you get the polio vaccine, mm-hmm. you don't get booster every six months. You get the polio vaccine, and you're, you have a vaccination. This isn't a actually, vaccine. Yeah. One every three months. Yeah, well, actually, you do. Um, so the way we vaccinate, like with polio, is, you know, you get your first shot at two months of age. And then two months later, and then six months or so after that. So it's there is a periodicity with vaccines. Now, with uh, and if you think about it, flu vaccine is a good example of that. So there's a couple of different reasons for that. Um, did you get immunity to begin with? Yeah, you got exposure. Your own immune system is potentially, you know, if if you did have COVID that you're producing, which sounds like, you know, your your pretest probability was really high for that um, with those symptoms, and certainly the time period. Um, we do know that there is, in most cases, some protection after getting COVID for a period of time, but we know that your ability to ward off that infection goes down. This isn't any different than a lot of other uh, viral infections. In fact, we knew this about um, you know the uh, coronaviruses as a whole. People were getting those year to year, and they were reinfecting sometimes even in the same year. So you'd get a little bit of a cold with a coronavirus, and then three months later, your immunity would go down. Um, it's just the the body's immune system in to certain things doesn't last as long. Now some things do. But if you think about a tetanus shot, you know, those are recommended anywhere from like, you know, five to 10 years, uh, depending on your age. So those are things that we have to re uh, to give a booster like that. Uh, You did mention that they hadn't been tested in animals or people. They actually were. Uh, They went through the same testing. It was just accelerated. Um, A lot of, of work went through by, you know, during the Trump administration to really remove a lot of the a lot of the uh, sequencing and and sort of speed that up, but even in the speeding up of it, it was still tested in uh, in animals. Still, we have millions and millions of people that have received it, and we have data that it's safe, and data that you produce antibodies, and data that if you're exposed by a coronavirus, that it's protective. So. That's just sort of the background of it, but we do have we have plenty of other you know vac- things that we immunize against, and you, you mentioned polio. That's one of them. Uh, in fact, we used to do an oral polio vaccine first, just because you got uh, a little bit better um, uh, immunity with it, and it was a little bit easier to give than a shot. Uh, however, about uh, one in a, uh, a million people would get uh, polio from the shed virus because it was a live vaccine. And now we just uh, give the inactivated form of it, but there's multiple doses of that. It's and that again, that's from from data looking at the immune response in children that you need multiple uh, doses, and the sequencing of it is important too. Like some some patients will or their parents will say, shouldn't we just spread all that out? Well, all the data comes from studying it in that particular sequence. Um, it's, uh, immunology is a fascinating uh, science, and it's, it is, we have allergy immunologists that are experts in this that have, after med school, they usually go through three years of residency and then have additional training after that. Um, and these are the people that are helping to develop that to use the body's own immune system to do it. But that's sort of the why behind that. 
Well, Doctor, just one last thing, uh, and, I'll, and I'll close. And, and thank you very much again for, for the call, taking my call. Uh, but wouldn't it also be beneficial to inform patients out there that are listening to the program that if they um, bol- you know, bolster their immune system by watching their diet, by exercising, by getting plenty of vitamin D, uh, that D3 uh, that I started to take, that my doctor told me to start taking vitamin D3 and vitamin C at 1,000 milligrams a day. I'm not suggesting anybody do that. I'm suggesting that if we bolster, if we watch our food intake, if we're not obese, we have greater chances, forget about COVID, but any flu or any kind of issue of breaking a hip, um, anything, it, the more, the healthier we are in some ways, that we can be proactive ourselves. We don't need somebody to constantly hold our hands and say, this is what you got to do and this is what you got to do. We're not babies. We're adults. And if we treat people as adults, then they'll act like adults. You treat a child, like I hate that term when they say college kids. I hate that term. When I was a child, nobody <laughs> yep. called me a kid. Right. I don't want to be a kid. I, when I was 16, I was working. I got my working papers, and I was working. I didn't want to be yeah. called a kid. So anyway, yeah, think, I'll close and listen to your comments. Thank you. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you on that. You know, I think, and and here's the thing. It doesn't, to me, uh, it doesn't have to be a, uh, a um, an or. It can be an and, and it should be an and. If you think about, you know, health in general, certainly there are some things that are going to contribute to that. And if you think of it like a pyramid, you used to have great illustrations of pyramids of things. The base of that pyramid for everybody uh, should be a healthy lifestyle that begins with a good diet that's uh, varied and healthy, doesn't have a lot of saturated fats. We know that that's very helpful for all kinds of different things, as you mentioned. Um, Cardiovascular health, your immunogenicity, how everything works, and exercise. And then there's certain other things that, you know, certainly don't want to pick up any bad habits like smoking or drinking too much alcohol or other things that could harm you. Um, Safety measures, you know, that kill people. Uh, Seatbelts, they work. Um, Being careful about certain things, particularly if you're at risk, if you're an elderly individual who has an unsteady gait. uh, You don't want to have a lot of uh, rugs in your house. Uh, Just things like that that um, go a long way. And I hope we can, you know, we we could spend two hours talking about that uh, and and talk about that with our patients and we certainly I, I try to do that but I think you're right that's a good base um, you know I'm just because of the training because of the resources we have to add to that I think is important and we shouldn't skip over it either a lot of people would say well I can pretty much just live how I want to and then modern medicine is going to take care of everything else and that's not true um, so I'm an and person I'm Let's try to live healthy by doing certain things. If we can, I love taking people off of medications. I have some great success stories of some of my patients who had been on hypertension medications or diabetes medications, and because of changing some of the choices that they've uh, that they've been making and changing their lifestyles, they've been able to come off of those. Uh, love to do that, um, but I think we, you know, a lot of times we have to do both, and um, that's medical training, and that's uh, certainly what we know about the science. So, yeah, I totally agree with you. All those things that you mentioned are very healthy ways that you can uh, try to prevent some of these things. 
I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. Has some wonderful questions, lots of good topics today, like we always do. It just, you know, a lot of people say, how do you develop the content of your show? Well, you do that for us. That's very nice for you to do that. And it's so applicable because it's real. Uh, It's actually the questions that people want to hear. And uh, I always get comments after the fact to say uh, by people that run into me and say, you know, I listened to your program the other day and they um, uh, the questions that were asked were the same, some of the same questions that I wanted uh, to ask. So Sharing those things with us enriches the content of this show and other programs that are produced by MPB. So thank you for calling, and we want to invite you right now. You have the opportunity to call by dialing one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. We're going to go to Wayne from Clinton. Good morning, Wayne. Good morning. How are you going this morning? Good. What's your question this morning? Um, I think I've done my due diligence. I would like to know what you would do if you were in my shoes. I've seen uh, a few surgeons, and um, I wanted the tiebreaker, so I saw a third one. And they're wanting, uh, one of them wanted to do an umbilical and a uh, inguinal uh, hernia repair surgery. Mm-hmm. So I got the tiebreaker. The, the tiebreaker he, want, he wants to do it. So there's two surgeons that said, yes, they want to do it. The third one says, I don't really need it. And just for, um, I guess, extra, the, the, my general physician says he doesn't think that I am in any position. There's no pain or anything like that. In fact, my general physician showed me that he had one as well. He had a, an umbilical one. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask is if you're having any kind of problems either in eating or discomfort or pain or anything like that with either one of those. None. Okay. Yeah, it's so umbilical hernias, and I know, uh, Wayne, I know you know about this yourself, having gone to you know different physicians and all the symptoms, but for those who are listening... So this is a weakness in the in the wall of something. So, you know, we have our abdominal wall, which both of these are sort of in the abdomen and pelvis areas. Uh, and our abdomen is made up of several different layers. And those layers help to keep contents in, help protect those internal contents. And sometimes there's a weakness in the wall of the abdomen that um, one or more of those layers sort of spreads apart and doesn't provide the support or protection that it should. And sometimes those are small, sometimes they're bigger. They can get they do tend to get a little bit bigger with time, 
Um, but uh, the two most common places are what you just uh, alluded to. One is an umbilical hernia, and that's right around your belly button. So that's in the same space. That's where your umbilical cord was hooked up to your abdomen uh, to provide blood transfer to the placenta and nutrients and oxygen uh, across there, too. And shortly after birth, that, that closes up and uh, and um, that should close up normally. Uh, those tend to be present at birth or shortly after birth when you can feel that. That's one of the things we check for uh, on a newborn check in the office um, at around two weeks of age and then following. If it's a small one, and by small, usually like less than a centimeter, those usually close up on their own and don't cause any problems. But if they're bigger, sometimes you can you can run into some problems with contents from the abdomen sort of uh, looping up into that space, and they can become constricted. Um, but people go their entire lives having those and don't have any kind of problems. Um, the inguinal hernia is sort of in in males, at least. That's that's the. Uh, there's two different types you can get of inguinal hernias. You can get a congenital or acquired, and uh, it's a little bit different pathway with uh, the bulging and the the weakness in the in the abdominal wall, but. Uh, pretty similar. And both of those are, are pretty simple surgeries to perform, although there may be some other surgical risks. So this is another one of those situations where you have to weigh the benefits outweigh the risk of surgery. Any surgery carries some risk, but uh, in today's world, um, even uh, you know, with, with pretty much with, with all of these simple surgeries or routine surgeries, I should say, uh, it's very minimal risk with the anesthetics that we have. It's a much safer environment than it was 50 years ago. Um, so that being said, really, if you're not having a whole lot of problems, this becomes uh, a an optional thing for you, and um, you know that's sort of my take on it. If you talk to a surgeon, surgeons repair things. They cut things out and they repair things. So if you go to a surgeon, almost every surgeon is going to have a bent and say, you know what, I can fix that. If you want me to fix it, I can fix it, um, even if it's not causing any problems. Uh, and some surgeons will say, you know, I can fix it, but do I really think you need it fixed? Not really. But that's sort of what they do. So it it, go, it stands to reason that if you go to see one, that's why they're going to be thinking about, can I fix whatever the problem is with as minimal risk as possible? And um, so, yeah, if it's not causing any problems and they have not, on, after an exam, this is one thing I can't do over the phone is to see if there's any kind of problems with other structures that have gone through those hernias. Um, but on exam, if it looks okay, I would say it, you don't have to have surgery on those right now that you may want to wait. Is there a risk down the road that uh, some of the abdominal contents, particularly a loop of bowel, might come through there? Sure. But, um, you know, if, it, if they're small and you haven't had a problem with that, there are certainly some things that they probably told you to avoid, like lifting uh, heavy things and straining uh, that could uh, push things through there. Um, you know, again, I, I've seen patients that, for whatever reason, couldn't get surgery and uh, had an abdominal hernia and just wore a binder across it to sort of keep contents in. Uh, so, yeah, it sounds like in your case, if you haven't had any problems and if the surgeons are saying, well, we could fix it, but it's not really causing any problem, you may want to wait about that. But um, but it certainly would be pretty simple surgeries, even if they did both of them at once. Thank you. Yes, sir. Thank you for calling. 
Yeah. Uh, so outpatient surgical procedures, a lot of times, you know, patients will ask about that. And some of my patients that I send to surgeons will have the same kind of conversations. And um, certainly there's some, there's some things that are more of a nuisance than a necessity about fixing. And um, there, there's other hernias too. I should mention that there's spigmalian hernias and other uh, and uh, hernias outside the abdominal wall. So certainly you can uh, you can uh, or, or other organs that sometimes can herniate. So you just want to um, you know everyone's a little bit different. Shouldn't extrapolate um, a hernia um, across all domains. This is Southern Remedy. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us. That email address is remedy at mpbonline.org. Uh, you know, we have lots of doctor jokes out there, like uh, internal medicine doctors will talk everything to death, you know. And uh, um, there's a guy on Twitter, Dr. Uh, Glockenflecken. Uh, if you follow him, you know, he's a hilarious. And if you're a physician, he's spot on with these characterizations uh, of different uh, types of physicians. One of the jokes out there about about my fellow surgeons who I love to death um, is that they, they have a motto that we heal with steel. Uh, so they love to cut things out. Um, so when in doubt, cut it out. That's right. This is Southern Remedy. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Um, same thing with uh, other surgeries, too. It's always a good idea to ask your surgeon about risk and benefits, what the success rate with the surgery is, particularly their own success rate, because it may be uh, dramatically different from what is uh, is posted on the Internet, their complication rate. Um, they're not going to make those up because they have to report that kind of information. Um, so, you know, those kinds of things are something you want to talk about before you have that surgery. Uh, and particularly with any doctor, but surgeons are, are probably a little bit more than this. If they're going to be, you know, cutting on you and uh, cutting things out or repairing some things, you want to be able to trust them. And uh, it's really okay to ask them questions. If you're getting a lot of pushback on asking questions, you might need to go to a different uh, doctor just to get a second opinion or a third opinion like Wayne did. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart. Thanks for listening to the original Southern Remedy podcast. You can get your medical question answered by sending an email to remedy at mpbonline.org. For a regular dose of medical information, subscribe to the podcast using your favorite podcasting app. The doctor is always in on the original Southern Remedy. What is Chalkboard Chat? It's an MPB education podcast. It's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers, students, parents, guardians, and everyday people on various topics. It's learning something new with every publication. Chalkboard Chat. Find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.
This is Southern Remedy on MPB Think Radio. Dr. Jimmy with you this morning, and uh, lots of great questions all across the board. Um, again, thanks to everybody who calls. You certainly make the show uh, much better without just listening to me all the time. We can actually listen to people who are going through some things and having some questions that we might can either answer or point them in the right direction. The number to call is one eight seven seven mpb ring That's one eight seven seven six seven two seven four six four. Or you can email us at remedy at mpbonline.org. Let's go to Josh, who's on the road. Good morning, Josh. Uh, good morning. Would you discuss the symptoms and treatment for occipital neuralgia? Ooh, yeah. So uh, neuralgia is one of those terms that is a an inflammation of the nerves, and uh, occipital just means that it's um, it's on the back side of your head. So these can be difficult to deal with. Trigeminal neuralgia is another one that's sort of similar to this. So it is on the front part of your face. Um, so for whatever reason, and we don't really know all the uh, the reasons why uh, things are triggered like this, there's there's some type of damage or insult to the nerve. Um, a lot of people think that this happens after a viral infection uh, or it's after some other uh, infection where the immune system is, is sort of uh, sort of beat down a little bit. But for whatever reason, there's a lot of abnormal discharge of the nerve. And these nerves are great when they, they work normally, but they can have severe pain uh, either when you touch the area uh, or even if you're not having any kind of stimulation. Um, there are several different medications that have been used to treat them. Uh, gabapentin is one, or Neurontin is another name for it. So this is a medication that was developed for seizures, but it was noted to be very good with neuropathic pain, pain that's caused by uh, some damage to the nerves, whether that's a compression of the nerve or whether it's uh, some other um, um, condition that's that's caused the nerve to be damaged. And then there are certain other medications too. Some of the newer ones uh, have uh, are, are uh, coincidentally seizure medications uh, um, that um, usually though after you've uh, I don't move beyond gabapentin too much when I diagnose them, and I try to get them to either an ENT that's um, that's uh, well versed in treating these, or a neurologist is probably the best person. But it can be very difficult to treat. Um, in severe situations, they can sometimes anesthetize those nerves, so they can inject certain materials around it uh, to deaden the nerve itself. But um, and sometimes that does work to alleviate the pain, but it usually leaves you with some anesthesia, so lack of feeling to that area, um, and you have to be certain, to, sort of careful, particularly on the front side of the face. But uh, Josh, I would I would advise you to uh, you know to to see a neurologist for that if you haven't already. Um, to sort of make sure you've got the right, the correct diagnosis. There are a couple other things that can sort of masquerade as, as uh, um, neuralgia. but um, uh, And then they're going to be able to point you in the direction of different medications like gabapentin that you could take. Can it, uh, can it cause a significant sensitivity to light? Yeah. 
light. Um, and usually that one's on the front of the face, but a lot of pa patients will complain about that. I've had a couple that said that. Or warmth. Temperature changes, either cold or hot, can trigger that. Um, yeah. it's, it's, it's not just light touch, although some, some will say, I can't even sleep on a pillow uh, because of the pain. And for a lot of people, it doesn't. it's not constant. It can come as sort of a shock, an electric shock type, um, and, and be over uh, hours to days. Um, everybody's a little bit different, but yeah, light sensitivity can, can sometimes do that too. And that's another reason why people, you know, like if you think about fever blisters that, that are caused by um, or herpes virus uh, and other viruses, uh, sometimes they can trigger the, the same type of things by a, um, um, a viral infection. And a lot of people might treat, you know, sometimes you can you can put treat people for um, a um, um, uh, fever blister type uh, reaction, even if it's on the back side of the head, and that can alleviate some of it. But again, uh, you want the right di the correct diagnosis first before you start treating down one of those pathways. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Josh. Let's go to Katie from New Albany. Good morning, Katie. Good morning. Um, I have actually two that issues that might be related. So I'll start with the first one because it's been going on longer, um, and I mentioned it to my internal medicine primary care with my at my annual physical, and it's um, like a little electrical shock on uh, my nails, either my fingernail or my toenail, and it's not the same finger or toenail. It's a mild shock, and occasionally it'll be, ouch, that hurt, um, and she... Um, didn't really know or respond to my question about that. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that's just started is um, my right foot burns and aches some, and I have just uh, been on my feet a lot. Uh, one day, 11 and a half hours up and down stairs and constantly on my feet. Um, I don't drink alcohol much. I mean, mildly. Um, I don't have any medical conditions that would cause neuropathy. Um, so I was just curious um, what those were. My annual physical is coming up, but since she didn't have any idea about the fingernails or, and the toenails, I thought I would ask that question. Yeah, and this still could be neuropathy. Um, and there's, you know, tons of different things that might could cause this. And certainly uh, fingers and toes are some of the first places that uh, it can show up. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to require, I would definitely bring it back up and say you're a little bit more concerned about it, um, both with the right foot and the fingernails and toenails. What should happen is a pretty thorough um, grilling of any kind of other symptoms that you might have. Um, that might be contributing to to something causing a neuropathy, and um, you know, thinking about a good physical exam about the the blood supply to those areas. Um, is it consistently good blood supply there, uh, or are there other skin changes that you might not have noticed that are indicative of maybe some damage that's going on in your extremities? And then you go into the realm of, uh, you know, certain things that might put you at risk that wouldn't necessarily show up in other ways, like B12 deficiency is one that comes to mind. Um, ah. 
So that's that's one that can give what we call a stocking glove pattern. So a lot of times it can be a, a either a numbness or pain, uh, neuropathic type pain in your hands and your feet. So stockings, gloves. Um, but yeah, I would mention it because they may she may be able to to even you know draw some lab work that might look for several things that might contribute to uh, neuropathy, and it can be subtle. And the other thing is, it takes time for some of these things to develop, particularly vitamin deficiency. Sometimes they can take weeks or months to develop. So um, it wouldn't surprise me if that if that might be a cause uh, of it. But they need to really get a good physical exam and look at the toenails and fingernails and uh, and blood supply to those areas, too. Okay, thank you. Uh, a B12 addition would be a nice fix if that fixed it. Oh, yeah. That's always one that's pretty easy, even if you can't. You know, some people just, uh, they stop absorbing it, and you just give a shot, basically, and you have to give that a little bit more frequently up front, but after a month or two uh, of replacement, then you just go to usually about once a month, and it's it's fine. It's pretty easy to keep that up. Um, but, yeah, that's a that's one possibility. I don't want to just totally zoom in on that because, again, right. there needs there's a broad list of things that they need to be thinking about, but you're right. It would be an easy fix. Thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast. MPB depends on support from listeners, so if you can, please contribute today at mpbonline.org. Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our MPB public media app. 